Hello and welcome to another episode of our Real Estate Insights Earth Series, exploring the role and responsibilities of the property sector in the future sustainability of our planet and our lives. I'm Guy Ruddle. And I am Marilis Ramos. So far, we've looked at how real estate can be a part of the move towards a more circular economy and why a more sustainable approach to energy production and consumption can reduce bills as well as emissions. Yes, and today, before we start today's topic, actually, just just have a listen to this. Isn't that perfect? Isn't that lovely? Oh, that's wonderful. And there's a reason for that, because today we're talking about biodiversity, what it is and why it's important to all of us. We're not alone in the studio, of course. Uh, We have a a top Savills team with us, three of the finest minds in the organisation. Let's start with John Deersley. He's a director in the Rural Team and Joint Head of Natural Capital. Amongst other things, he identifies new business opportunities and provides advice for a range of stakeholders looking to invest in nature-based solutions, something I'm sure we'll talk about a a bit more in a minute. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Guy. Nice to be here. Kat Martindale is our next panellist, and she's our head of ESG research. Kat has professional and research experience in the UK and Australia that has included biodiversity and particularly how it relates to urban design and large sites. Kat was actually with us for our first podcast on Circular Economy. Happy to have you back, Kat. Thank you. And David Bainbridge is a director in the planning division. He's a regular speaker on all matters planning and a specialist in major scale development. He's worked on this side. He's worked in local government in in the last, is it 24, nearly 25 years, David? It is indeed, yes. Hello. You don't look old enough to have done 25 years in the business. You're a gentleman, thank you. Well, you know, we like to keep people happy. So (laughs) let's get going. Um... John, can we start with you and start with you know the sort of the most basic of basic questions for the purposes of what we're going to spend the next half an hour or so talking about what is biodiversity? Well, I don't think it's a basic question at all. Um, I mean we all remember our school science lessons, biology, plants, um, insects, animals, bacteria, fungi, all those sorts of things. Biodiversity really is the mix of those that exist in our in our life. Um, Within a property context, we tend to think of it in two formats, really. One is in the rural world. So, you know, that of um, hedgerow uh, crops for animal feed or for, you know, combining and also the sort of nature based spaces that are out there already. And many of those have been under threat. Um, Equally, in the built property sector, you know, we often um, maybe haven't paid as much attention to biodiversity historically. But going forward, there's a lot of push to get green spaces back into our urban areas. And they're really important for our health and our happiness. And how are we doing in terms of biodiversity in general? Is it something that we're we're there, we're doing well at it? Or is it something that still has a lot to do? It's definitely a, an area where there's some change required. I mean, with a lot of environmental topics, we have this sort of shifting baseline syndrome. So, you know, we compare ourselves against, say, five years ago, when maybe we should be comparing ourselves, say, 100 years ago. And if you look at things like wildflower meadows, you know, something like 90-something percent of meadows have been lost in the last 90 years in the UK. You know, actually, we've we've come a long way in the last five to 10 years. But actually, if we go back to that original baseline, that's where the loss has happened. So it's interesting that you said that it's it's both the sort of rural economy and the urban economy because you know I think it would be easy to think of it as just being a, a rural issue but but the two have to work together I guess don't they 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, we all have have started to appreciate you know green spaces in our in our urban world, and um, biodiversity or, or the biology in the world doesn't really mind where it lives. And you know, the most obvious example is the sort of urban fox that you know lives off a, a, a dustbin diet. But actually, you know, they have become very very used to understanding what um, what their habitat looks like, and it's not green fields; it's a built environment. So, Kat, you have a lot of experience on urban design and ideas around integrating biodiversity in urban design. What does biodiversity mean for cities? I think it requires a broader review of some of the strategies that are currently being employed, where it's developed on a site-by-site basis. There might be heavy emphasis on tree planting. There might be heavy emphasis on uh, a little bit of rooftop farming, um, pollinators, But I think we need to see the city in the same way that we view the rural landscape as requiring an integrated strategy that goes across much larger swathes of the built forms than it does at the moment. And of course, you know, we're talking about biodiversity, but it's not just about making sure that there's, you know, lots of different plants and and, and animals and things around it. When you talk about spaces in in urban areas presumably there's a sort of social context as well yeah and i think covid brought that into sharp focus what we need from cities is not just the amenities where you go to work where you go out where you go to dinner it's also the relaxation spaces and if you look at the large green spaces within the city they're packed on a regular basis um, and not just residents but visitors as well so they're always popular. Yeah, David, uh, you, in your world, in the planning world, how much is this now absolutely front and centre of everyone's thinking? Or is it still, oh, nearly forgot about it, we've got to do something in this part of the part of the, the scheme as well? It's absolutely front and centre stage. Every single working day, morning and afternoon, we're discussing biodiversity net gain as a result of proposed development. And development has such an important role to play going forward to be delivering on the agenda which the government is setting. And there are some very good examples where landowners, promoters of developer development and developers are looking to get ahead of the game but we absolutely need a step change in what we're doing across the board and not to wait for regulations to actually come into effect or policy. We need to act now and be on the right side of history to bring in a minimum biodiversity net gain as a result of development, whether it's in the rural environment or in the urban environment, whether it's greenfield or whether it's brownfield. It's really inspiring to hear that because obviously we live in a world where we're surrounded by sustainability consultants who think, Biodiversity, of course, it's a no-brainer, but it's really um, heartening to hear that this is front and center of everyone's concerns. So I guess it's not all regulation-driven then. There is a lot of move from the private sector to get this done as well? Yeah, it's, it's certainly working in partnerships. So it's a public sector, it's a private sector as well. So it's about developers and landowners and promoters getting together and deciding in terms of their contractual position, whether they can accommodate what the policy might require, but more so whether they can go over and above what the policy requires. Because currently in England in particular, we've got a patchwork of policy. So in some local authority areas, you've just got to provide a minimum biodiversity net gain. Some areas is 5%. Increasingly, as of potentially towards the end of next year, it'll be 10%. So some developers and landowners are saying, actually, let's do a bit more than what the policy 
requires because this is about the future of nature. And if we look after nature, nature will look after us. The regulatory environment and the policy environment around this. I mean, I start reading about it. I hear about the Environment Act. I hear about frameworks for land use, this, that and the other. I hear about biodiversity net gain and no one quite knowing what's going what's going on and, and what it's going to be like in five years time. I hear people rowing back on stuff in government and then it changing it's so complex and so difficult. Has, has anybody got a sort of an overarching idea of where we are, at least in terms of the sort of regulatory position that we're in? What I would say in terms of planning for biodiversity as a result of development is that we should be preparing for a mandatory minimum 10% biodiversity net gain. And sorry to interrupt, but when you just can someone explain what we mean by biodiversity net gain? Yeah. So biodiversity net gain is the ability to measure the current value of biodiversity in any given area and how to improve over the baseline value. So whether that's a greenfield or whether it's a brownfield site, it's about being able to measure what the value is today and what the value will be as a result of development coming forward. And the important thing that we should all be preparing for is when it comes to planning for development, that we hope, we expect, as of November 2023, the minimum mandatory requirement will come in. So rather than having a patchwork of policies across England, we'll all know that we've got that minimum to work towards. But there are those developers and landowners who are already planning ahead because planning permissions are being issued right now, today, where development will take place over the next five, ten years. So why grant planning permission now, which doesn't require a minimum 10% biodiversity net gain when it's going to deliver over the years ahead? That's where we've got to be thinking ahead and be on the right side of, of what we're planning for. So that's, that's, that's David with his planning hat on. John, where does that leave someone like you with your natural capital hat on and your rural hat on yeah uh, i mean actually the, the two sit together really really well and i mean the, the reason being that and we shouldn't ignore this in, in the world we live in is you know is money uh, and, the, and the flow of money and the value that is created in this and actually one of the challenges historically has been that the most profitable solution hasn't always taken the environment in its broadest sense into into um, account for that so actually, what we've got is by the policy, such as biodiversity net gain, you know, south of the border, and actually emerging planning policy in Scotland and other areas as well, starting to bring the finances into this. So what that means is that, you know, David's clients who are looking at sensible ways of providing this um, habitat, you know, the habitat requirement, are looking to the rural context to find cost-effective ways of delivering that. And so all of a sudden, the clients that I'm working with, they have a way of financing it at a sensible price. And if you look back at you know, things like the Lawton Review, you know, that bigger, better, better connected sort of principles, quite simple stuff, really. Actually, we had to bring, you know, biodiversity together, multiple different developers coming forward into a rural context and delivering something that can have change. What, so, what John's referring to there, of course, is an emerging market for biodiversity habitat. So a new layer of a market which will need to be regulated with policy, which will come into place. And of course, we're already engaging in that. There's a huge demand for land, which might be of a lower habitat value currently, to enhance that as a result of development and other initiatives coming forward. I was going to pick up on that, actually, because it's very interesting. It, are you saying that we're looking at a future where we can trade biodiversity credits of some sort in the same way we're currently trading carbon? Yeah, um, it's absolutely, and it's happening. There are live examples now all over the UK of, of this happening. 
Um, I think you know there's there's the credits that are being generated as a direct result of biodiversity net gain, as David refers to. There's also a slightly broader biodiversity sort of credit market. And if you look, I mean, not exclusively to Scotland, but certainly predominantly in Scotland at the moment, there's people developing a sort of biodiversity credit, this idea of you know finance, green finance, wanting to get in and support these initiatives. Is that a, a good thing, Cat? I, I, I mean, playing devil's advocate a bit, I mean, it, it, isn't that a bit of a cop-out? You know, sort of offsetting, and uh, uh, as opposed to actually doing something, you know, in a proper in a uh, within that urban environment, or you know, or, uh, or the within the development. Now that's a very straightforward question because you know I'm I can rant about this, and actually John and I were talking about this exactly on the way over, and my frustration is that as we become an increasingly urbanised population. Are we using offsets, whether they're biodiversity or carbon, as a way of getting out of changing our behaviours and the way that we build? We need to make radical changes to the way that we operate individually and collectively because we can't keep hammering the planet like this. It's just not going to work. Okay, so if you take that as as a, you know, we need to do a lot more. Earlier... You talked about the things that are being done, mm-hmm. which are like planting a few more trees or uh, have bees on the side of buildings or no, no, it's something else growing on the side of it. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> Green walls and bees on rooftops. <laughs> okay, those things. You're saying that's not enough. So what is enough? What what do people need to do? We need to have a, a joined up strategy. And I think there's one city internationally that does this well, which is Singapore, and everybody will talk about that, where there are the leaf area index specifies the type of plants that should be included in a building. It's not left to designers. You know, they have thought about this quite clearly, and it's a new planning requirement. But then Nottingham, my hometown, so obviously I'm going to vote for this one, (laughs) has had for over 20 years a strategy called Breathing Space, which looks at a range of Uh, strategies and proposals within the city centre of improving green space that range from parks, cemeteries, allotments, front and back gardens, counts every trees, looks at every waterway and brings that together to not only demonstrate that what you can do in terms of improving the, the green space within a city but the health impacts that that can bring to the community. What I'm slowly realising through this conversation is that the plot of land is no longer just a plot of land, is it? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, food um, has always been the, the predominant grow or yield from land and food's still really important. We shouldn't forget food. But actually, without wanting to bang on about the economics, actually the money of this really starts to stack up when you realise that a plot of land can deliver more than one thing. So it's not just tonnes of wheat or, or whatever else. Actually, it's, you know, it's biodiversity, it's water, it's carbon, uh, it's amenity space, it's all of these things together. And layering those benefits is, is back to Kat's point where you, know, you have these this overarching sort of principle in this rather than trying to say we've got an offset here or a you know um, requirement over there it's how all these things slot together is where the overall growth happens can i pick you up on something you've just said which is you, you said i don't want to get bang on about the economics of this and the money that surely we should bang about on about the economics and the money because if it's not financially viable then we're not ever going to really do it and i just wonder if, whether we're still at the stage where Everything to do with biodiversity development is being forced on developers and, and landlords and, uh, uh, and landowners, etc. Or whether by now we're in a situation where it is 
you know, a business advantage to be biodiverse. Yeah, it's it's not being forced upon developers. Uh, there is, you know, in new emerging policy, but this really is about a biodiversity hierarchy. So don't do the harm in the first place. But where there is harm, you know, the, the, the planning system for development in particular is about sustainable development. That's about the environment, it's about social, it's about economics. But the hierarchy is such that if you can't avoid doing harm, then try and mitigate the harm at the closest point to the source of the harm as possible. So on a development, include habitat, which can make good what you're doing. I think what we're talking about here is an immature emerging market for credits, for units, for habitat mm-hmm. off-site. That's not the preference under the biodiversity hierarchy. Try and deal with it on-site. And many developers, promoters of land, are looking to factor that in from the very early stages because it makes for better placemaking. But David, on on that, I mean, a a challenge to that in, in, you know, I stick up with the rural audience in this space is that, you know, actually we're talking long term commitments and we've all seen the developments that come off very shiny on day one. But before long, people have tarmacked over their front gardens or, you know, they've had to go and chop a tree down because they're, you know, can't get TV reception. How do you protect the biodiversity in that context? Surely the rural, you know, long term land management is what a lot of farmers do. Well, of course, the emerging regulations, as you know, John, very very well, is that the biodiversity land, the enhancement, will be protected for a 30-year period. So this is not about people, you know, cutting down trees or mowing their grass in their gardens. This is about land which might be put into a public body who then manages that, whether it's on-site or it's off-site. But of course, we need more detail from the government going forward, and we're very much looking forward to that. We've had a consultation earlier this year. We need to see the detail of it. But it's more about protecting those spaces. And, and I suspect the planning system is perfectly capable of protecting the spaces, whether for 30 years, which is the intention, remains to be seen. But I think rather than looking back, because we can learn from what hasn't gone well, let's look forward. And I think there's a great appetite there as part of sustainable development to stop factoring in biodiversity into new development, whether it's regeneration within cities and towns or whether it's greenfield development on the edges of those cities and towns. It's very interesting, the the idea that it has to stay like that for 30 years because you submit something for planning and normally people just walk away from that. Um, how do you see that working out? Because this is very, the, e, the G in ESG is all about governance. Mm. So what are the practical things that need to happen going into the future to make that 30-year period possible. I mean, the first thing is, again, the, the, the biodiversity hierarchy. So where the harm is, try and deal with it at the closest source as possible. Factor into master planning where the green and the blue infrastructure is going to be. Factor into what green and blue infrastructure being obviously green space and you know, surface water drainage and sustainable urban design and what have you. And then also consider, before anyone gets planning permission, what the management regime is going to be for that. And you'll have different places. So you might have a parish council which is going to be responsible for managing of a children's play area. That's not biodiversity enhancement. You might have what we would refer to as a a suitable alternative natural green space. That is more likely to contribute towards the net gain in biodiversity. That's more likely to be managed possibly by the parish council or possibly by another body. And there are a number of bodies which are set up with the full intention in mind where they're sufficiently funded and they have the objective and the timeline in place. And then you can measure that. But what I would say is we're not yet set up in this country, England in particular where I'm operating in the planning system, we're not yet set up to effectively police this new emerging system. The one thing we haven't really talked about yet is is measurement. I mean, I know it's a very simple question. Are we good at measuring biodiversity yet? 
There are different ways of measuring and it's not just in money. Uh, there are indirect social benefits, as you, you know, mentioned earlier and alluded to. So there are developers that will include um, allotments in their development sites because they've seen a massive increase in demand for allotments across the country. Now, a developer is not going to make money out of allotments. But if you've got a development site where you've got allotments on that site, and would there be greater demand for that housing development than another one further down the road? What are the health benefits of providing allotments that mean that we actually have a reduced demand on the health system? So there are indirect costs coming through that are, that are more difficult to accurately quantify. We're getting consistency in that measurement of biodiversity, and in particular in the sphere of biodiversity net gain. And, you know, that, that's the government, so the Department for the Environment, Food, Rural Affairs, Natural England and such like, who we all work with at Savills, including with local authorities who are responsible ultimately for policing this. But I think a lot of the um, structure going forward will be self-policing. I think increasingly what we're seeing from the market, from purchasers, from occupiers and landlords is to put this in place from the outset and make sure it's not just about identifying land use, it's identifying the, the management regime going forward. But this will only work if we do have the measurement going forward over a period of time. It's not by just identifying a bit of land and saying, right, we're going to have some nice trees and a bit of grass there and we're going to try and keep the dogs out of it. It needs to go beyond that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at the moment, the biodiversity net gain calculation, does that take into account all the stuff that Kat's mentioned about the health benefits and and all no, the other I mean, things? One of the limitations of, of the defrometric, as it's commonly referred to. Oh, God, not another term. <laughs> I'm, so. but I, I'm going to stick up for them on this one, actually, because you know, they've taken a really broad topic, as we've tried today to cover, and tried to bring it down into something that fits in one Excel spreadsheet, which you know is, is no small task. But what it allows is it's a facilitator. It's not a perfect measurement tool, but it does allow two different parties to have a conversation or people to look at the, you know, the, the mitigation hierarchy and say, right, how can I best achieve you know this overall goal and i think with with a topic that is or sorry a topic that is so complicated there needs to be a starting point and we're not going to have a perfect answer but we do need to get going how well advanced do you think the knowledge and wisdom and expertise is outside of this studio amongst your clients and amongst the industry generally I think, you know, first of all, the fact that this, we're recording this podcast and David referred to earlier that this is on you know, agendas at boardroom tables mean that people are wanting to learn. Whether everyone has perfect knowledge yet, I'll be honest, I think there's still a lot of learning to do in this space. But I think you know, everyone I've engaged with, A, it's a topic they want to know about. They're, they're genuinely interested and they feel passionate about it. Um, equally, uh, the, the sort of general policy and market movement demonstrates that if you don't learn about this you're going to fall behind and so I think those two factors mean that people are learning very quickly even if we don't know all the answers yet. I think increasingly developers, landowners are seeing biodiversity as being an opportunity. It's it, it's a positive force for change. It's not just a threat. I think it has been seen as a threat. And I think often that's arisen from the patchwork of policy and guidance which has been out there. And I think when we get on a level playing field to know you've got a minimum requirement going forward, there's a consistent measurement of how that could be done. And if the market for offsetting, even though it's not the preference, but the market for offsetting becomes more mature, then I think that will help because the uncertainty that we've had there is the enemy of investment when it comes to development decisions, particularly at the boardroom level. 
but I think it's not just policymakers and it's not just clients, but I think the general public is more interested in this now. Um, they might not always use the phrase biodiversity, but nature, wildlife, greening cities, um, what we do with the landscape and how it folds into the climate crisis are not uncommon conversations. I think the issue of biodiversity is, is something that affects us all as human beings. Um, our, our children know that bees are going extinct and that we have to protect them. And I think we need to, as people working in the built environment industry, go beyond those token gestures, those tick boxes about, I don't know, bird boxes and bat, bat boxes, boxes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and actually try to look at biodiversity as an ecosystem that needs to be connected across developments and spanning borders. Uh, listening to the other Savills um, podcast around energy, it's very similar challenge on the challenges of the grid. We know we've got this you know, demand in one place and this potential source in another, but it's how those connect up is the most powerful bit. Before we finish... We've been doing a slightly different version of our, our normal Real Estate Insights feature of Tell Me Something I Don't Know in this Earth series. And we're we going to change it again very slightly again this time, aren't we, Marylis? Yes, we are. Everyone, oh, if yeah. you could only persuade people to do one thing, who would you persuade to do what? Um, it, it's starting to happen, but for developers and promoters of land for development to take the decision now that going forward from this day onwards, they will plan for a minimum 10% net gain in biodiversity from development. Be on the right side of history. Be proud of what they're doing. They can speak to their children and the family members and say, yes, we're doing this ahead of the government bringing in the mandatory regulations. Go for it now. That's just, I feel inspired, John. <laughs> Well, I was um, equally inspired, and I think you know from from this, you know, talking mainly to farmers, to land managers, you know, actually, please don't let the spreadsheet rule the day on this one. You know, incorporating biodiversity into rural land management doesn't have to cost money. It can even be a profit centre in certain situations. But actually, bringing it into the farming system um, has a so many benefits that will only help down the line. And to wrap up, um, I'll build on David's plea earlier, which was about policy um, and regulation. I'm moving forward on that. We need consistent, clear uh, policy, um, how you measure that, and also engaging the wider community and having those conversations. Because I think if you're you can demonstrate that within the wider community. It makes it a lot easier for policymakers to get these what can be sometimes difficult decisions over the line if they're not aware that there's broad support for a particular aspect and there is clear support for this. Okay, well, thank you all for coming today and we really enjoyed hearing about biodiversity and having you all talk about it from your different perspectives. And, and I like to hear Mary List talking about it. I like to hear you talking about it as well. So, so that's great. Thank you all very much for that. So, um, if you want to find out more about this stuff, if all we've done is, is get you interested in the topic, there's all sorts of reports and blogs and the like on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk forward slash research. I can tell you from personal experience of researching this topic, there's loads of stuff there, all of it absolutely fascinating uh mary list that's three episodes done now uh, yep. what are we going to talk about next time next one's going to be really interesting it's going to be about de-risking our supply chains excellent well we should look forward to that in the meantime as i say everyone thank you very much uh, thank you very much for listening and see you next time see you next time
This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.